Hello and welcome to Consumer Choice Radio. We're broadcasting to you live across North America, syndicated as always. You can go to consumerchoiceradio.com to find many more of our articles, interviews, videos, and more. Plenty of information there, including how to subscribe to the podcast version. But you're listening on the radio right now either on Saga 960 AM in the Peel region, Ontario, Canada, or the Big Talker 106.7 FM in Wilmington, North Carolina. I'm one half of your host, Yael Ososki. Doing well here, sitting pretty and uh, getting ready to jump on a jumbo jet. And I'm joined, as always, by my colleague, David Clement. David, how goes it? Oh, it's going well. It's going well. I got to golf this weekend, which was, or this week, which was, uh, Fantastic. So life is pretty good. No complaints. How'd you how'd you shoot? Oh, not great. It was pretty rusty. <laughs> yeah. yeah, it was pretty. Well, rusty. of course, if you haven't been out, you know, you haven't been out there, haven't been able to practice. You've been playing your Tiger Woods game in soar in indoors. Yeah. You can't really get out there and perfect it, you know, in your first tee. Hit. Yeah, uh, yeah. There was some winter rust that I got to chip away at, but did you wear red? By the way, no, uh, for I, I didn't. I didn't. I should have. That would have been a nice ode to Tiger. He's he's healing up well though. He's uh, he's at home. He's recovering. For those who don't know, Tiger Woods uh, a few weeks ago was in a pretty serious car accident. Uh, they'd used and he was just I think it was just down the street from I don't know if it was his house or some club or whatever, but he's like sped out super quick and just wrecked it. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. I, I, it, they, they didn't um, they didn't find any um, suggestions of intoxication or anything. I just it turns out to be like an accident. But yeah, he had a pretty serious uh, fracture in his leg and they had to take him to the hospital and they had to get him out of the car with the jaws of life and all that crazy stuff. But he seems to be uh, healing up. Okay. Which is good. Hopefully he'll be back on the course probably in the next, maybe a year or so uh, given the extent of the injuries, but man, what a guy, what a career this guy's had oh, so many decades. I, I mean, I remember watching this guy in elementary school. So that it tells you he's uh, top of his game. So it's going to be a great program. We do have um, a guest who will be phoning it in from Louisville, Kentucky. We'll be speaking with Ted Mitzlaff. He's yeah. the CEO of Goodwood Brewing. Uh, he's actually suing the governor of Kentucky. We're going to hear some some very interesting insight there uh, related to the uh, COVID restrictions and everything related to restaurants, breweries, and the like. Um, so check for that. That'll be uh, after the first break. Uh, David, I know there's a couple other topics that we wanted to mention uh, there's, you know, some stuff that was happening in the United States. We had some uh, some shootings that took place both in Colorado and uh, in Atlanta, Georgia. Mm-hmm. Uh, these definitely did, um, you know, take up a good amount of space in the media world. A lot of analysis there. Obviously, tragic circumstances uh, of which uh, we should probably sit back and wait before we get all the information, before we make any large assumptions or produce any policies. But uh, I guess a lot of people are not as uh, disciplined as we are. Well, yeah, I mean, it's just yet another example of it's probably best for you to sit on your hands and wait for the information to come out rather than make some uh, some assumption and make yourself look foolish. And for, for those who are wondering what we're talking about, essentially for one of the the individuals um all throughout twitter many people were talking about how it was another angry white man who had committed this crime it turns out that the individual in question wasn't white not that that matters um 
but it uh, it it just exposed a lot of people for really jumping to conclusions. And the really sad thing is we've seen it here too. Um, in Canada, when, when there was that van attack in Toronto, people on the far right were very quick to be like, oh, well, it has to do with Islamic terrorism, which of course had nothing to do with that. Um, and so it, like people jumping to conclusions or using these strategy, tragedies to score political points is just, you, you end up with, with egg on your face. You look like an idiot when you get it wrong. You look like a goof. And yeah. I, th I think another point to add to that is we're always trying to find rationality in irrational actions. The majority of people who are in the U.S. or Canada do not participate in these type of things, do not go and shoot up, you know, a grocery store or some kind of massage parlor. And we try to find rationality and map it to our, you know, whatever political understandings or ideologies of the day. And uh, that's just bad, because in the end, that means uh, your rights at some point will be curbed. There'll be some terrible law that's introduced that will affect you, that will make your life probably more difficult than it is now. Uh, so just a, a small warning. Uh, there'll pro probably be a lot more that'll come out in the in the weeks to come on that. But obviously, tragedy and uh, thinking of all of the families, uh, that's definitely nothing that you want to hear, particularly people who've been you know locked at home, and uh, some people are flirting with disaster when it comes to a global pandemic, and yet this goes on. Uh, so David, we've got some, some other, I guess, positive news coming out from our colleagues here at Consumer Choice Center. Uh, we've got this amazing railway index, uh, which probably does not sound that exciting to North Americans, uh, but it was a ranking that our, our European colleagues did of the greatest railway stations throughout the European continent, uh, basically ranking them on passenger friendliness. Last year, the St. Pancras Station in the United Kingdom uh, was the top prize, but now it's Leipzig, Germany. Uh, we've got uh, that over there on our website. You can go to consumerchoiceradio.com. You know, we'll link to that in the show notes. Uh, already getting picked up in the Daily Mail, the Independent, um, throughout Europe, uh, different publications, even some Russian uh, publications as Moscow made it into number six. Uh, kind of cool, David. I don't know if um, there's anything comparable we could do in North America that would be uh, as interesting, um, you know, for for our audiences. I, I mean, we could do airport, and we could do an airport index for North America and evaluate the different airports. And I say that because recently Pearson Airport won some sort of award, um, oh and immediately when I saw that, I was like, "That's a fraud." That air that's a bogus. Yeah, yeah, that's fraud. <laughs> that airport sucks. Everyone who's anyone who's traveled anywhere else in the world knows that Pearson Airport is brutal. Um, so it would be nice to maybe maybe we should do a, an an index on North American airports. I know. Yeah, I know the points guy. Uh, they put together one on at least U.S. airports. Okay. Uh, but they they used a different ranking. It was it's probably like I don't know how many points you can cash out. Yeah, on. yeah, yeah. Who has the best lounge or something? I, I don't really know the, the ranking, but yeah, that'd be. I think that'd be cool. Uh, I don't know if like uh, best interstate drive or something would be kind of cool. Ooh, you know, that's like more like more for the best highways, well, maybe. So like, yeah, best highways. Yeah, you have uh, Highway One that's over there east. Uh, that's in in Florida. It goes all the way to Key West, or you have uh, Highway sixty six out west. Uh, I don't know if the 405 or uh, any of these. In... <laughs> I mean, I'm I'm pretty sure the 401 is like North America's deadliest highway. So, <laughs> oh, they could be. They could be. 
uh i yeah. mean that would that would be cool you could do that and look at things like speed limits actually a lot of them are being ticked upwards um so people are kind of realizing that in canada the old 100 kilometer speed limit was maybe a little too slow um so that's oh, been, tell me about yeah, it yeah yeah you know how many tickets i have on my record because of that it's <laughs> <laughs> like makes no sense yeah yeah not good um uh. yeah that would that would be a good one uh, i'm trying to think what else i mean we could do train stations but just not enough north americans travel by train like i think i've once in my life i've been on a train from toronto to ottawa and i think the whole time i was like i don't know why i'm doing this this is very strange well I've taken it Montreal to uh, Toronto and Montreal to like Brockville and stuff. Okay, times. fair enough. That was uh, the via rail's nice, but again, it's a you're talking about a essentially a state monopoly, and uh, most of these services, as we know, are not ideal. Um, funny moment as well, David. Since we're broadcasting on the big talker, I was complaining about mail packages. Okay, because I I received a package from my parents all the way from North Carolina to Austria. It took one month to mail the package. And uh, I was making the point that, you know, this is what happens when you have a state monopoly and you don't have, you know, we have all the efficiency and the technology and the low economic cost of moving cargo and everything. It still takes a month to send a package. And I uh, I said to uh, our, our colleague, Joe Catanacci, who hosts the morning show over there on the Big Talker, that uh, it'd be a great opportunity to introduce um, a nice competitor. And I brought up the example of Lysander Spooner's yes. American Mail Company, and uh, he mentioned it on the air and talked about it a good amount. And you know, who would know that, that we'd be talking about anarchists from the 19th century <laughs> yeah. on, on 21st century terrestrial radio? Well, you know what the funny thing is, and uh, this will be news to you. Um, I feel your parents' pain because I was actually attempting to try and send you something from the U.S. Uh, for your birthday, which is coming up, which would have been a sweet shirt with Ron DeSantis playing beer pong on it. Oh my goodness. Yeah. Yes. You can go ahead and you can go ahead and send that to my parents' address. Uh, I'll be there well, soon. That's what I'll probably have to do now. But uh, <laughs> I was trying to send it to Austria and it was just like, holy cow, I could send it to Canada and then I could direct mail it quicker to Austria, but it would cost like 300 bucks and just not. Yeah. We still don't have free trade. Um, you know, imagine that we still don't have free trade between the European union and the United States of America. I mean, there's the deal, obviously, between Canada, there's CETA and the EU, but I don't really know, uh, you know, what customs duties might be on, on things like clothing or books. Yeah. That's I mean, something to look at. It's just, it's so irritating because when you order stuff internationally, it's really hit or miss. Like, you don't know whether or not they're going to get you on the customs duties because sometimes you can order a shirt and it's like, oh, okay, it just arrived. Um, it's like, did they miss it? Or is it like exempt? Nobody really knows. And I remember mm -hmm. once I was ordering some books and I got a call from this, uh, from the people at the, the holding company or whatever it was that gets involved at that point. And they're like, oh, well, you have to pay a brokerage fee on top of the duties in order to, for us to release this. And it's like, what? Good Lord. I just want some books, man. Like, give me a break. Yep. And just a small hint to anyone who might be ordering anything and, and have to pay customs duties, never declare the real price because you will end up paying a percentage of that. And I've had to pay this at the door in cash, hit up multiple ATMs, and uh, yeah, not a good day. No. And uh, you know who else is not having a good day, David? Uh, the uh, I would say the captain of the Evergreen Container Ship, 
oh. who uh, oh. is stuck in the <laughs> Suez Canal. If you've seen this story, yeah, jackknifed a four hundred meter boat. <laughs> apparently, blocking and choking off all uh, global shipping routes that go through the Suez Canal, which is uh, yeah, that's a good amount of cargo. And and this guy, yeah, got. Got it stuck in the rough. Yeah, uh, he's <laughs> churning up mud. Uh, there's a lot of good pictures that you guys have probably seen online. That captain is not having a good day. No, no. Yeah, can you imagine just being like, um, "All right, guys, uh, I got the boat stuck," and then being like, "You got it stuck." Yeah, I got it stuck in the middle of the second largest shipping route in the world. So we're gonna have to call everyone everywhere and tell them things are going to be delayed for a couple of days the only way i mean that might be why the packages are so late by the way but also you know this is a perfect opportunity for the pirates oh you, know, you got a sitting you got a sitting duck here you can <laughs> you can light up your dinghy boat and throw some ladders up there and <laughs> a little bit of captain phillips going on yeah you can pry open some of these containers there's a, this is the kind of thing that's interesting is that all this stuff always happens in the background and we're just impervious to it. We don't even know what's happening. But if you look at the map, and there's a great application I would recommend here in the consumer corner. Uh, I believe it's called Marine Traffic. Mm-hmm. And you can look at all global uh, boats that are just moving at one time. I've, I've seen that. I did that with... It's, it's great. I was, it's great if you look at the ports, especially. I, I So I think once a yacht reaches a certain size, it's on that app, too. Because I was looking at that when I was in Monaco, and I was like, "Oh, what boat is that?" And I'd look it up, and be like, "Oh, that's a four hundred million dollar yacht." Okay, um, very nice. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and, and actually smaller ships too. Because uh, I think when I was in, uh, we were in Greece, uh, looking at that too. You know, you just see like some guy's personal boat, and you can find the name, and you can find the number, and you can find out who owns it. You know, everyone flies a different flag. Yep. You know, so all these container ships as well. So everybody's got some flag from you know Panama or. Liberia or just some strange nation that doesn't really have many restrictions on it. But uh, I really do enjoy that app. It's a lot of fun. Uh, I mean, just to see the amount of of traffic and shipping and yeah, pirates uh, can probably be a problem if you you've got this much cargo, you know, going back and forth around the world. Uh, but but I tell you, it's something. Uh, you guys stay tuned in here to Consumer Choice Radio. We've got an interview now with CEO Ted Midlaff. Uh, We'll be right back with this. Stay tuned. And welcome back to Consumer Choice Radio, broadcasting here on Saga 960 AM and the Big Talker 1067 FM in Wilmington, North Carolina. We have the pleasure of speaking with someone who understands a lot about the impact of COVID restrictions in his state. We're speaking with Mr. Theodore, or Ted Mitzlaff. Uh, You know him, maybe you might have seen his name pop up as the CEO of Goodwood Brewing Company out there in Louisville, Kentucky. Ted, thanks so much for coming on the program. Thank you very much for having me. So we wanted to have you on because we saw this uh, lawsuit that came across the transom uh, from our friends at the Pacific Legal Foundation. There have been a couple of these, and it seems as if uh, you've, you've taken issue with some of the emergency powers uh, that were enforced by the Kentucky Governor Andy Bashir, who is a Democrat, and this relates to all of the COVID nineteen related policies and restrictions. Um, if we can just get uh, you know your sort of, um, we'll say intent and uh, why you wanted to get into this, uh, so how specifically you've been hurt, 
and what uh, many of our listeners might not know about some of the restrictions that were enforced there in Louisville or in throughout Kentucky. Yeah, it's interesting. You know, the last thing I wanted to do was uh, pick a fight with the governor. Um, that's that's certainly not my intention. Um, uh, I just want to run a business and 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 uh, provide for my employees. The uh, the first bill. Well, let me go back. The, the, our governor went way above and beyond the CDC recommendations. He shut down the all uh, food and beverage uh, establishments for months. Uh, when we did open, uh, it was twenty five percent and then 30%, and then 50%, and then he shut us down again uh, for really no apparent reason. Uh, of course, uh, you know, all the big box stores were still open. You had 1,000 people in a Home Depot, but you couldn't have 50 people in a restaurant. So it, it, it was crazy. Uh, when the uh, House legislature started back up in January, their first bill, HB1, was to uh, overrule uh, Bashir's executive orders, basically take them away so we could follow uh, the CDC guidelines. Uh, it passed the House 74 to 21, passed the Senate 29 to 8. So overwhelmingly, the, the House and Senate opposed Bashir's executive orders. Governor Bashir vetoed uh, this bill. His veto was subsequently overridden. So then he took the bill uh, or took a lawsuit and filed a lawsuit uh, in Franklin County where he has a judge, uh, Philip Shepard, that pretty much does whatever he wants him to do. So we have a single judge, uh, a single judge who's overruling the, the will of the people, the will of the Senate and the House, who said uh, Bashir gets his executive orders in perpetuity. So all I'm doing is uh, filing a suit in the adjacent county, in Scott County, to say, no, we're, we're going to follow the state constitution and we're going to open back up safely with uh, following CDC guidelines. The way it's affected our economy has been uh, really uh, beyond measure. We've had over 30% of all of our bars and restaurants fail. Uh, we've had uh, a, a huge ripple effect. All the suppliers to those uh, industries are suffering. We had, for instance, in my business, I have three restaurants. So those restaurants obviously were closed and they're still, now we're at 60% even though our, our infection rate is extremely low and it continues to drop for the 10th straight week. Uh, but then you also have, uh, in my business, I distribute beer. So not only are my restaurants affected, but all of my clients are affected. So uh, from a distribution standpoint, uh, uh, you know, that's been terrible as well. We were in 16 states prior to uh, the, uh, the, the COVID shutdowns, including the great state of North Carolina. And um, uh, now we are in eight. Uh, with, with beer distribution. So it, it has certainly uh, affected our company in a significant way. And, and so on the restaurant front, and I, I, I know this has happened in other jurisdictions where legislators have shut down restaurants and the industry has basically said, well, show us the proof that we are where people are getting uh, or are transmitting the virus or giving it to other people. Was there any evidence given from the governor's office to say, well, there's actually a risk with the CDC guidelines and restaurants aren't operating safely? Or is there no evidence? I mean, I, I'm assuming there's very little, but maybe you can speak to some of the efforts that business owners and restaurants um, were doing to ensure that people stayed safe while staying open. Yeah, not only was there no evidence, but the, the rules that he was putting in place were ridiculous. We couldn't sit inside a restaurant, but you could sit 
inside a tent outside as long as you were inside the tent, which which made no sense. So the restaurants that had good air circulation, good sanitization, we, we couldn't utilize that space. We had to spend tens of thousands of dollars, which we did, to put tents outside at two of our establishments. Now uh, there's no bar seating. You can sit at a table at a bar, but you can't sit at a bar. So it makes zero sense. And of course, you, you've heard now the you know Fauci saying, well, it's not six feet necessarily, it's three feet. So, so what is it? You know, it, it, it just the, the rules continue to change. I get it. It was a new pandemic. They didn't have a lot of uh, evidence initially, but they do now. Now they have it. Now we know it's safe to open. Restaurants, the restaurant industry has gone way above and beyond uh, as far as what we, you know the, the measures we take. We've always taken extreme measures uh, to make sure our clients are safe. But now we're we're going to uh, additional measures with, with sanitizer, sanitizing tables, uh, wearing the face masks. Uh, you know, we are in compliance, taking temperature of, of clients as they come in. And we're fine with all that. We, we want our clients to be safe. But to have an arbitrary curfew, uh, it just makes no sense. I, I guess COVID only comes out after midnight. Well, it's, it's funny you say that because they're, when the UK first did their, their, um, their curfew, there was an image, I think it was Piccadilly Circus or some one of the major train stations, and it was jammed because everybody had to leave the restaurants at 10. And then it was like, uh-oh, we've basically created this mass gathering by virtue of trying to get people out of bars and restaurants by a certain time. And so it's always, I've always found that puzzling. Like, what, what justification is there to say that all of a sudden the restaurant is, I guess, what, more irresponsible after 10 p.m is that the the argument or yeah if, if you can if you can bring some type of uh of reasoning to any of these arguments I, i'm all ears but I, I haven't heard them yet yeah there's plenty that's going to be debated i know uh, in the courtroom and i wanted to ask about that this uh, lawsuit hinges on the emergency powers and this is something that has not just in kentucky we've seen similar suits or uh, legislation in places like North Carolina. California is going through this. They even have a recall of their governor. I don't know if that's possible in Kentucky, but that's probably something you'd be leading the charge with. Uh, but I'm wondering, um, with the emergency powers, is, is that something that um, is, is being debated? You know, Are there other industries that are coming to you where you have a different, you know, perhaps legal experts who are saying, hey, you actually do have a case here uh, this has gone far beyond what a governor should be allowed to do, especially considering uh, the legislature has put forward their own bill uh, to try to overturn this. Yeah, um, interestingly, I, I've had a number of other uh, bars and restaurants tell me they back me 100%, but they're all scared to death to put their name uh, on the lawsuit, put their head on the chopping block. And, and I can assure you, uh, you know, we've taken plenty of arrows. Uh, my poor gal who heads our uh, marketing uh, you know, reads all the, the hate on social media. People, people are real brave when they're standing behind their, their uh, laptop. But, uh, uh, you know, the fact is it's the right thing to do. Uh, we're, we're trying to uh, basically support the, the Constitution of Kentucky. And uh, I think it's ludicrous that a single judge has the, the ability to dictate policy for the entire state when, when the state legislature uh, overwhelmingly uh, passed a bill to open the state. Moreover, our adjacent states, Indiana and Tennessee, uh, they're, they're open. 
they're open for business. Uh, I live in Louisville, Kentucky, which uh, borders Indiana. You can go over to the bars and restaurants in Indiana. Uh, that They love government Bashir's, uh, Governor Bashir's lockdowns because it's great for their business. I have another follow-up question about the pandemic and how that's impacted the alcohol sector and the, the restaurant industry. Across North America, we've seen state governments, provincial governments, local governments peel back some very outdated rules. Um, so like one example was the ability to deliver alcohol with food, um, which in many jurisdictions was not allowed. Um, are you seeing any of those changes in Kentucky? Has COVID brought on maybe some of the, the repealing of those, um, those nanny state laws or is Kentucky lagging behind when we compare it to other states? We have, uh, we've seen some uh, loosening of, of some of the regulations. Uh, we were allowed to serve, to sell drinks by the glass. Uh, we were allowed to deliver alcohol with food. Uh, so some of those uh, uh, onerous restrictions have, have been lifted, which is great. They just passed uh, a, a rule that allows self-distribution uh, of breweries at a very small level, up to 2,500 barrels per year, which a, a keg, as you think of a big keg, it's a half barrel. So uh, uh, it really helps uh, some of the small breweries that, that frankly were, were devastated by this. And uh, it enables them to self-distribute uh, at a small level just to try to stay alive. Oh, that's a very welcome reform. I know that uh, specifically in North Carolina that they've uh, they've had that limit changed, you know, arbitrarily every couple of years, but uh, it's trending upward, which is always a good thing. Uh, so we're speaking with Ted Mitzlaff. Uh, definitely an interesting case here. We're going to link to it on our show notes, consumerchoiceradio.com. You guys can can see that. And I, I think there's there's somewhat of a movement, as I mentioned before, that is happening everywhere. Uh, when it comes to the ongoing restrictions, to how governors are responding, to how legislatures are responding. I have one question I'd like to ask just about the industry and its future. Um, we, we chatted previously on the program about uh, your last name, Mitzlaff, and German heritage. Obviously, the Germans uh, brought you know, the great, uh, great beer traditions to America, set up great Biergartens everywhere. You know, what is uh, sort of COVID and COVID compliance going to mean for the future of of breweries. I know breweries are a huge industry in many different states, certainly North Carolina, definitely Ontario and Florida. I mean, almost every single state and place across North America. What will these kind of restrictions or fear of COVID pending, you know, 100% vaccination mean for industries like yours? Well, it's, it's very impactful. Uh, most breweries have a tap room. So uh, obviously they want to draw uh, people into those tap rooms to serve. That's where we get our highest margin when we're uh, selling our own beer out of our own taps. Uh, that in, in my Louisville facility, we're at about 30% of our pre-COVID uh, revenues. So it, it has really impacted our Louisville facility. Uh, downtown Louisville as a whole has been decimated by, by COVID uh, in the uh, hospitality industry. Of course, uh, for those of us that are distributing uh, our beer, as I mentioned earlier, uh, if the bars and restaurants are closed early and if they're at 50% capacity, 60% capacity, whatever the, the limits and restrictions are, uh, that, that's uh, hugely impactful. Uh, and people say, well, you know, you can sell it in, people are buying it in liquor stores, which is, is somewhat true. Uh, they are buying, you know, more canned and bottled beer, but that's also our lowest margin product. So while your, your volume in, in certain areas uh, may uh, be stable or even increase a little bit, it's your lowest margin. 
So our highest margin is draft, our highest margin is out of our tap rooms. And those are the areas that are they're most dramatically impacted. And they expect the same, uh, about 15 to 20% of all craft breweries around the country to fail. Uh, in fact, we're uh, closing on a, on a deal, uh, hopefully today, to uh, acquire a, a location in Indiana, in Indianapolis, Indiana, uh, a company that, that went under. And uh, uh, I want a, a more business-friendly environment, frankly, uh, than, than what I'm getting in Kentucky. And on that, on that kind of beer freedom index side of things, where are some states who handle the industry, from your view, appropriately? Because I know that different states have different rules um, from a consumer perspective. I mean, you look at a state like Pennsylvania, which looks like it's just getting out of prohibition. And then you have states who are maybe a little more open and free. Um, who's doing it right? Who's, who's figured it out? Historically, uh, you know, North Carolina obviously has had tremendous uh, benefits for craft breweries and, and breweries going there, which is why you guys have become sort of the, the craft beer mecca of, of the East, Eastern United States. Uh, I mean, Asheville is just fantastic. Uh, and then other areas, the Raleigh-Durham area, uh, you know, a lot of great breweries coming out of North Carolina. Similarly, uh, Michigan was very progressive uh, with their uh, laws that favored craft breweries. And uh, you've seen several great breweries come out of, of Michigan, uh, same with Colorado. Uh, but uh, the converse now uh, in some of those states like Michigan that have been extremely onerous on uh, their, their COVID restrictions, uh, it's been devastating uh, to the industry as a whole. Uh, so it's, it'll, it'll be very interesting to see who survives, uh, who's able to, to, to weather this. Uh, uh, you know, the, the PPP helps some. Uh, it, it helped uh, our production uh, because we have payroll, uh, you know, significant payroll in production. But most bars and restaurants, uh, you know, they're, they're not paying, uh, their payrolls are pretty small. So uh, the basing uh, relief on one's payroll uh, really didn't help the restaurant industry that much. We've been speaking with Ted Mitzloff. He is CEO at Good Wood Brewing, and they have the good sense of having goodwood.beer as their domain. Beautiful. Uh, Ted, thanks so much for coming on Consumer Choice Radio, and best of luck in your case. Thank you, gentlemen, for having me. And we're back here on Consumer Choice Radio. Hope you guys enjoyed that. Not every day that we get to talk to someone who is uh, leading an epic lawsuit against a governor to open up the bars and restaurants. Uh, really fascinating insight from a you know a small business owner. We don't really hear from these people too often. And I think for a lot of people who might be listening, it's something that people have been definitely caring about the past couple of months, David. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's it's like the big question right now is for reopening, what does it look like? There was a, I think they were going to attempt to have a concert in Ottawa with um, with people who have been fully vaccinated, but it got canceled for some reason. And I know some US NHL teams have offered up tickets to people who are fully vaccinated or they're starting to. So I think that that's a good start. Um, the quicker we can get there, the better. But at the same time, I, I feel super, I feel so terrible for people who own a restaurant and are trying to navigate, like you're in the green zone this week or you're in the red zone next week because cases went up by 10 cases. And it's like, this all seems incredibly confusing. You're trying to pay people and then they're not working. It's just not great. Um, so I certainly have sympathy for them, um, especially because, and, and, and this is, 
I think mostly true, 99% of these restaurant owners are just asking to be allowed to stay open responsibly. They're not saying, well, I don't want to follow any rules. They're just saying, Oh, yeah. And, and most of them appeal to the uh, CDC or other federal health guidelines yep. that are set by health authorities. Yep. It's just not in that jurisdiction. Yeah, exactly. So that's another big one. I mean, there's a, there's also a big debate going on about religious services in in British Columbia because they're still not allowed to do anything in person, which I mean, I'm not a religious person by any means, but it seems really strange to me that you can have some sort of capacity limit on a grocery store or a restaurant or a sports store but people can't go to church under that same capacity limit um well i think you saw the story in california that um, if you are riding on a roller coaster you're not allowed to scream <laughs> did you see that yeah, i did it's like uh... <laughs> and it's i think it's the same argument with the church you know people go to church and they're very jubilant and they'll sing and they'll shout and i guess it depends on your denomination but yeah, they, people are, are much more willing to, you know, be open and meet and shake hands and, and be lively because yeah. that's what church is all about. Yep. <laughs> so, yeah, well, hopefully we can, we can get more uh, from Ted, more updates on what's happening with the lawsuit uh, that's actually being charged by the Pacific Legal Foundation, a great sort of, um, uh, I will say, legal firm that takes on many of these cases in which a government is overstepping its bounds. They've got a lot of diver- different interesting things, and hopefully they'll they'll send us some more guests here in the future. I know that uh, there's probably millions of these cases happening across North America, but very cool to get insight from them. Um, just if we can uh, turn the dial a bit locally, North Carolina, mm-hmm. uh, where this uh, program half broadcasts, uh, we're now pretty much at 100% capacity in terms of most uh, situations and places and businesses. So definitely everything outdoors, your outdoor bars and patios, and uh, also museums are going to be 100%. Re- retail stores, 100%. Museums, salons, uh, I think they're only capping bar capacity at about 50%, uh, which, which ain't too bad considering many, many do have outdoor space. You know, that might not always be the case. But things are looking up. Uh, mm-hmm. I think it's just over, I think it's about 26% of the population in North Carolina has their first jab, uh, which are very enviable numbers, I know, for, for Ontarioans. Yeah, there. yeah. <laughs> it's, uh, I mean, it's it's hard. Generally speaking, I think a lot of the public narrative has shifted to, well, at least things are getting better. But in comparison yeah. to the rest of the world, I mean, we are we are trailing behind some countries that we should not be trailing behind. <laughs> It's it's not great, um, and there there has been renewed focus. I know that this is um, our our colleague Fred Roda had a, a tweet up about this because in the European Union there it was central uh, procurement of the yes. vaccines, and we're going to get it cheap as possible. Israel uh, took another route and they said, "Hey, give us as much as we can get now. We'll pay top dollar, whatever." And they're sitting pretty at you know close to one hundred percent. Yeah. And I, what was the strategy in Canada then? Uh, well, they kept the the contract secret, so we don't know what they paid, which I think is super nefarious. I don't like that one bit. Um, but mm. so my description of what happened was they got, so they bet big on uh, the CanSino vaccine, um, which was a joint venture with China. 
that got blocked in terms of shipments to Canada because of everything that's going on between the two countries. And we essentially were late to the table to all of the other vaccine manufacturers. So we overpurchased. So we have more doses, uh, more purchase orders uh, per capita um, than any other country in the world. But because we got to the table late, we were slow in actually receiving the vaccines. And I mean, a lot of people on Twitter, they'll be like, well, it's not a race. And it's like, uh, no, it is absolutely a race. I mean, every day we are <laughs> slow on this, more people get the virus, more people die from the virus. And the closer we can get to 60, 70%, the closer we get to go back to the way life was before. And I mean, yeah, that this seems like such a typical Canadian track, you know, overpay, pay way more than anyone else get it slower and then you know, and then pat yourself uh, on the back as if medi- mediocrity is some heroic achievement um oh amen yeah i mean it's 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 absurd i mean we're the 10th most powerful economy in the world and right now we're behind chile bahrain malta serbia hungary morocco um All of Europe, Aruba, Norway, Romania, Switzerland, like it's the it's a long we're buying Greenland. I didn't even know Greenland people lived in Greenland, but they vaccinated more percent of their population than we have. Um, So it's wow. And I I bet you had Trump bought it. The numbers would be even higher. (laughs) I haven't thought about Trump buying Greenland in a while. Thank you for that one. <laughs> yeah. yeah, that's, uh, I think so. I saw someone mention it the other day, and uh, it's, it's not a bad yeah. idea. I'm, his thinking was there. You know, he had the mindset of Alaska, Hawaii, Guam. Well, I mean, there was once a Canadian story where the Turks and Caicos was thinking about adopting the Canadian dollar as their currency. And someone in Parliament way back was like, well, why don't we just annex Turks and Caicos, and then we can have our own little island. And when I hear that, I'm like, if they want it, let's do it. Sounds yeah, pretty good. <laughs> I mean, that sounds really cool. <laughs> I know there's a there's another example. I believe it's called Ile Saint Marie. Yes, uh, which is French, technically in in Canada, but yeah, it is is part of the uh, French Dominion, mm-hmm. which is very very strange and um, you know something that uh, I saw a documentary on it and people have the same accent and they mostly go to Montreal to go to school, but you know, you're still using the Euro it's under the French flag. I don't know if, I don't remember if French citizens, particularly men still need to go to military service. I think they abandoned that, but they still had to go and fight in the military Yeah, uh, for a number of I years. Don't, I don't think they do it anymore, but no, I, I think that was abandoned about the eighties and nineties, but it is very active in uh where in greece and austria here they used to have it in germany i think they got rid of it it's many european countries actually and definitely israel no doubt men and women yeah i've seen that i don't know if anything like that could ever pass muster in uh either canada well you'd certainly hear from me about it because i am i am vehemently opposed to any mandatory military service but i'm all in on the exercise yeah (laughs) yes yeah i'm all in on the exercise not so much on the military service or conscription part yeah. Uh, speaking of being conscripted, uh, here's a couple couple articles that I was able to put together over the last couple of weeks of um, some of the federal health regulators in many different countries 
that are being uh, recruited by Michael Bloomberg, yep. a billionaire extraordinaire. Uh, we talked about him a lot in the early days of Consumer Choice Radio when he was, uh, you know, blowing hundreds of millions of dollars and trying to be president. Obviously, a failure. Uh, but what he is really good at, as we know, is showering people with money. And there have been some revelations that he's been doing that in the Philippines and then also Mexico to try to ban vaping products. Uh, that's been pretty much exposed by now. Uh, we've seen some of the documents that come from Mexico, which are actually insane. Uh, one of the charities that he funds, the Campaign for Tobacco-Free Kids, uh, which, again, terrible misnomer of a name by now, uh, they actually wrote the law that will ban vaping in Mexico yep. and uh, did not remove their name from the stationery <laughs> on the bill that was introduced. So it's uh, pretty clear who wrote it and uh, which organization. I tell you, David, this would be an outrage if uh, you know Consumer Choice Center wrote the bill in Canada for, I don't know, paid plasma or yeah, something? Yeah, yeah. It's, uh, it's not a good look for for them and... It just it's weird. I mean, it's 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 one thing to like lobby the government, but it's another when they get caught with their hands in the cookie jar. <laughs> oh, yeah. And the in the case of the Philippines, what happened there is uh, they actually received a grant, the uh, FDA, which is what it's called there, their health regulator. Uh, they received one hundred and fifty thousand dollars just to, for staff to oversee the banning of uh, e-vapor products. So they got a grant explicitly from a foreign NGO uh, to staff people in the government to try to ban a particular product, which, again, if this happened in any other country, if it was any other person, if it was any other cause, would be an outrage. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, could you imagine if, you know, they have some oil, you know, policy and Exxon gives money to who knows whichever country, you know, Myanmar to uh, you know, implement some kind of oil program. I mean, that'd be terrible. Uh, I mean, it's a little bit like the SNC scandal. Oh I mean, boy, they, there we go. They get they get dinged um, for getting caught bribing foreign officials, which was uh, which is a crime that is illegal in Canada, and because they're a Canadian business, they those laws apply to them as they operate overseas. Um, so if it was. If it was a if it was a Canadian um, NGO or company that got caught doing that, they would be in big trouble. Yeah, and I, I don't understand why there isn't more accountability. Uh, there was an article that came out, I believe, in philanthropy dot uh, com. I think it's the Chronicle of Higher Philanthropy or something like this. They they had a pretty good expose on it as well. Mm -hmm. uh, so something that we're keeping our eye on. Uh, obviously, we are here for consumer choice and for advocating for your lifestyle freedom. Uh, here on the radio and throughout all of our programs and projects. Uh, we've got other things that we're spinning up around the world. Um, another one that I wanted to mention uh, very quickly, David, is in Mexico, since we're staying in North America, uh, they actually have a proposed um, cap, or I would say it's going to be a content quota, uh, something that Canadians are very familiar yes. with. But essentially in Mexico, 15% of all streaming services will need to provide domestic native content uh, content quotas are something that you've written about, David. You've thought about it a lot. Why is this a bad idea? Well, I mean, there's just no need for it because in in Mexico, like we have in Canada, they have um, funding for their state broadcaster, 
uh, I don't know what the figures are, but in Canada, it's like a billion dollars to the CBC. And the whole argument is to protect Canadian culture and whatnot and fund Canadian content, which is fine. Um, but if you're going to do that, it seems silly to then go after private companies who are just responding to what consumers want. I mean, if you're a Canadian listening to this show and you go back a few years, how many of us were using VPNs to get American Netflix because it was better? Um, it's it's just reinforcing that really terrible, or I mean, it's kind of reinforcing that that culture of mediocrity where it's like, oh, well, you know, our Netflix kind of sucks, but that's okay. Um, and so, yeah, it, we can flip. We can flip on that VPN and get some better content yeah. elsewhere. But it, it's much of the same. I mean, it's because of this revolution that many people are watching Spanish productions, Mexican productions. Um, I'm definitely a big fan of Canadian TV. I know David ain't, but <laughs> there's plenty of other programs that we're watching from other countries in different languages, and that's not because of some law that mandates anything. It's really because we've uh, allowed these programs to flourish and to, to reach consumers. And uh, i got to be paternalistic here. It's been a great program, David. Thanks for the hour, and uh, we'll talk to you guys next week. And that does it for Consumer Choice Radio. Thank you for joining us for the hour and for all the other past shows and archives. Check with Consumer Choice Radio for much more. Consumer Choice Radio, hosted by Yael Ososki and myself, David Clement, is a syndicated weekly conversation featuring the latest news, interviews, and expert analysis that covers consumer topics from around the world, focusing on innovation, tech, regulatory policy, and science, Tune in every week to learn why consumer choice matters. You can find all of our previous episodes, interviews, and show notes over on ConsumerChoiceRadio.com, as well as the podcast version of this show. And as always, be sure to subscribe and rate us wherever you do listen to your podcasts. You can follow us on Twitter at ConsumerCRadio, myself at Y-A-E-L-O-S-S, and David at Clement Liberty. And find our interviews on YouTube and Instagram just looking up Consumer Choice Radio. If there is a consumer issue affecting you that you think that we should cover, email us directly at hello at consumerchoiceradio.com. Thank you again for listening.
you will destroy through COVID-19. No more! No more! No more! of America is here.